Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you? I am doing well. It is a thunderstormy day in Missouri, and that is one of my favorite things. I was just driving my son home, and we got to watch this giant lightning storm in the sky that is absolutely one of my favorite things about living in Missouri. Yes, I miss that about being out in Missouri. There was a day that Shelly and I were driving Highway 13, and we chased, I don't know, we were way way south in Missouri, and we were driving Highway 13 for a long time. We chased a thunderstorm that actually produced tornadoes all the way up and just kind of watched it from a distance, and it was amazing. We didn't get to see any of the tornadoes, but we heard later that it produced some. It was the coolest like storm cloud, storm system we, we got to see while we were out there. It was amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just so beautiful. But how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I had a productive day at home, just, you know, doing laundry and dishes and tidying up, interacting with the kids a little bit. Uh, watched a show with Shelly and now I'm talking to you. Nice. Well, what's on your mind? Yeah, so I have a guy that used to be in my youth group when I was a youth pastor way, way, way back when, just out of college. And he also works in the 911 industry out in Missouri. And he and I have been interacting a little bit lately, specifically about the 911 industry. And he knows that our podcast is really is willing to talk about the 911 industry. But even bigger than that, I think you and I have both indicated a number of times that we really care deeply about the soul. And then therefore, how the soul impacts us in our various aspects of work. You know, I in the 911 industry, you as a pastor. So I actually want to introduce three episodes, if that's all right with you. Fire away. I would love to do two episodes in the future, uh, the next couple of weeks. One, where we talk about the 911 industry and its effects on the soul. And then I would love to talk about the effects of pastoring on the pastor's soul. But Mm. in order to get to that point, I want to spend today exploring what in the world is the soul. We say we care about it, but what is it? That's a fascinating question. Since you're raising the question... When you think of the soul, what do you start with? It's a great question. I start with this general, hard-to-define category that I would just basically say is all of me. Like, every piece of me that there is, mind, body, emotions, feelings, whatever it is, like, everything about me is wrapped up in the soul, But I think that still leaves it fairly ill-defined. But that's kind of where I start, and I try to work it into language from there. What about you? Do you have better words or language than I do for the soul? So when I think of soul, a couple of things come to mind. I do think that on some level what we're talking about is the part of me that is the most truly me part of me. When I think about anything about the soul, I am deeply indebted to Dallas Willard Mm -hmm. and 
you know, the book that comes to mind immediately is Renovation of the Heart, which is one of my all-time favorite books. If I were going to have somebody read one book on how a person's interior life is transformed, it would be this one. Mm, Uh, Yeah. And pulling it off my shelf just now and flipping to the chapter on the soul, this is what he says, and I think it's an interesting place to start the conversation. He says, the soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. Let me say that again, because what I want to do is ask you, what strikes you about that definition? The soul is the aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. What do you think about Mm. that? One, Dallas Willard is brilliant, and I'm so glad you referenced his book because I do think it is the definitive work on, as the title suggests, anything he decided to write about. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, So, but what stands out to me about that definition in particular is the two words correlates and integrates. And I think because we in our society have often gotten away from soul language, right? It's a little too religious Mm. for most contexts, though we do have certain phrases, right? Like we just will say something like his soul just wasn't in it or something like that. So we do have these words and sometimes uh, they're even in song lyrics or what have you. But I don't think day-to-day we think much about the soul. Instead, I think we think about the self. And what these words Mm. correlates and integrates the various aspects of the self, I think that is hugely important. There is a lot of talk in our culture about, quote-unquote, finding yourself, or be yourself, or express yourself, or some people even say, live your own truth. These are very idiosyncratic, very like existential questions, but what do we do? What's the organizing piece? What puts all of this together and into a coherent whole? And that is what Dallas Willard is saying the soul does. It correlates and it integrates. And if any thing is needed in our society right now, it's help correlating and integrate the various various parts of ourselves so that we can become a integrated whole. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that the self, in some sense, he talks about the various dimensions of the self, presumably meaning the heart the mind, the will, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. If I'm right that that's what he's talking about, the self is the human person in some ways at the mercy of those things. Mm. Myself is who I am as defined by my feelings. The self is who I am as defined by my thoughts. But the soul 
is that transcendent piece of me that goes beyond how I feel in the moment to what is deeper and truer about me. Jonathan Edwards distinguished between emotions and affections. Emotions were the moment-by-moment kind of reactive part of me. I stub my toe and I'm angry. I see someone I haven't seen in a long time and I'm happy. But underneath that kind of jagged up-and-down line of, of emotions, there is something deeper to who I am that is more stable and consistent. So this actually came up in a conversation I had with a coworker today. We are getting ready to go into a local prison and do a long day of ministry. We will meet at the church at about five o'clock in the morning. Uh, we will probably get back to our homes somewhere around seven or eight at night, mm. uh, having had a church service the previous night that ended at nine o'clock and having a church service the next morning that starts. Uh, many of us will get to the church at like 745. And then we actually go back to the prison for another service that evening. So, I mean, it's going to be just a long weekend. And I, I jokingly said to my coworker, hey, one of the things you're going to notice about me is that if you're around me for 12 or 14 hours at a chunk, at some point, I'm just going to stop talking. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? I said, well, and this is genuinely true. Just about everything about how I interact with other people is learned behavior. Left to my own devices, not paying attention to it, I tend to be a fairly taciturn, fairly withdrawn, fairly grouchy person. Hmm. And I would say that grouchy person is myself. That is how I feel often in the moment. But there is something greater than that that is true about me that I have learned to live out. And I said this to her, and I said, now, please don't think that when I'm being nice or interactive or whatever. I'm not trying, I'm not being inauthentic. I'm not faking it. And she said, no, I think it's more authentically you if that's what you're choosing. Hmm. And maybe that offers a handhold or, or a handle on how to understand the difference between self and soul. I love this illustration and it describes you well, which is great. Thank you for sharing a piece of yourself. But it really illustrates what we're talking about to a great degree. And I think going back to my comments about what people in our society appear to be looking for is that extra layer, that deeper layer. So I think some people are content or don't know better than to stop at that first layer where you, you identified, hey, this grouchiness, this kind of taciturn, grouchy person is myself. And I think some people are just like, well, then, you know, if you don't like me, so what? I don't need you. That's just who I am. You're going to have to get, you know, get used to it. And I, I guess on some level that might be true, but there is a much deeper level, as you say, as something greater about you that is 
even more true. And to integrate that unattended self with the intentional self and all of the different emotions and thoughts and choices that you make all into a coherent whole, now we're starting to tap into the soul. Yeah. And the other thing that I love about this, the other the word that actually captured me the most when I read this sentence from Willard was this word enlivens. When all of me is being brought into a coherent sense of wholeness, I am more fully alive than I ever am. Even though I am getting there by choosing to say no to certain pieces of myself and yes to other pieces of myself, that would sound like I'm less fully alive because I'm having to say no. And yet, the vibrance of my life, the depth of peace, the depth of joy, man, you know, to be honest, peace is the word that really captures this experience for me. Even mm-hmm. in the midst of saying no to certain things about me, there is a peacefulness that comes in being fully dialed in to who I really am on the deepest level. Yeah, it makes me think of one of the classes that I took. It was actually the, the introduction to the training and mentoring class that I took at Denver Seminary, which, by the way, Denver Seminary does a lot of great things. But this training and mentoring aspect of the curriculum might be its shining moment. And in this introductory class where we talked about what is mentoring and what it is we're trying to get out of it, one of the concepts we explored in that class was the difference between your practical theology and your confessional theology. So Mm. confessional theology, this is the stuff I say I believe and really actually do truly believe. But then your practical theology or your lived out day-to-day theology might at times conflict with that. One of the more common Mm -hmm. ones is for us to affirm that God is a loving God. And yet sometimes we live as though God is mad at us or in judgment of us. And so we're actually living out our day-to-day lives in such a way that is different from our confessional theology. And there comes, as you say, this peace when we bring our practical theology and our confessional theology into greater alignment, which means adjusting parts of how we tend to live and saying no to certain things and making choices that go a certain direction because we're bringing ourselves into a better, more integrated whole. And that is soul work. So can I keep reading from Willard? Because he has another sentence here that I'm curious about your thoughts on. Yeah, please. So he says, the soul is deep in the sense, and he's about to give two senses in which the soul is deep. First, in the sense of being basic or foundational. And second, in the sense that it lies almost totally beyond conscious awareness. It's that second one that I'm intrigued by. The soul as such, he suggests, lies almost entirely beyond conscious awareness. What do you think about that? I think he's right. One, who's going to argue with Dallas Willard? 
So I got to start with <laughs> he's right. But here's where that starts working on my heart and my mind. We did back-to-back episodes on prayer and Bible study rhythms and methods. These are tools mm. for shaping our spiritual practices. And it's we focus on the tools and the consistency and the rhythms because it shapes a soul that is largely hidden to us. But if we focus mm. on these rhythms and we introduce these practices and we stay consistent at them, we know it will shape our souls in such a way that our souls will do the integrating work into the rest of our lives that produce the fruit that we want to produce. And it's not just the ones that we talked about. I'm taking a class this fall on uh, spiritual practices. And so we will be integrating a lot of different spiritual practices. And I can't wait to talk to you more about that as the class begins. Yeah. From fasting to silence to all of these different practices, right? We focus on the practices themselves because it shapes a soul that is largely invisible. And I think you said, even on a previous episode, we have weak souls. So we have to really work at the exercises that we know strengthen this largely invisible thing. That's where my mind goes. But you obviously were drawn to that quote and that sentence. So what is your reflection on it? <laughs> I'll tell you what. Uh, my my response and the reason I asked is because my reaction to that thought the idea of soul or one's soul lies almost totally beyond conscious awareness. My initial response is honestly a huge amount of annoyance that is all <laughs> captured in the in the question, so why are we talking about this? Uh. Like, there is something deeply frustrating to me that I think you responded to brilliantly in what you just said. And the thing that frustrates me is to hear... Your soul is basically two things. It is the life source and organizing principle of your entire existence, and you are completely unaware of it. <laughs> yes. That is a genuinely frustrating, even if accurate, pairing of realities. And I had no idea you were going to say this, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of it. I think you're absolutely right. It points us back to spiritual practices that cultivate soul through daily, regular usage. For example, I have been experimenting recently with the idea of centering prayer. Have I talked about this on the podcast yet? We've talked about it offline, but I think this might be the first time we talked about it on the podcast. Okay, so centering prayer is a kind of prayer that bridges the divide between meditation and prayer. By meditation, I mean the kind of focusing on your breath work that I referred to in that previous conversation when I referred to our weak souls and mm -hmm. prayer, which is a, often a very active activity. And it lands in the middle by encouraging you to come up with a single word 
or image that is powerfully representative of God for you and to keep your attention on that one idea for a prolonged amount of time. And not only for a prolonged amount of time, but the basic introduction to centering prayer that is encouraged suggests that you should spend 20 minutes twice a day for six months. Oh, geez. Yeah. Focusing on this one image. You don't get to pick a different image every day. You don't pick a different image in the morning and in the evening. It is one single word on which you focus twice a day, 20 minutes each time, for half a year. That is slow, methodical, gentle, careful work that is so different from the normal speed, the normal approach we have to our spiritual lives. And I find it to be fascinating. Yeah, it is. And I think these types of practices, boy, they're they're daunting on the outside. I look at that and I think, I can't even brush my teeth twice a day for six straight months. Right. Uh, so I don't know, praying as a, one image for 20 minutes twice a day for six months. And then I think like, gosh, you know, that gives me roughly 120 of these over the course of the, you know, a lifetime, right? That's it. You get 120 words or images that you get to meditate on and mm -hmm. you're dead. I don't know. Daunting, but I see the value and I see how this, as you say, is very centering. And I think that yeah. gets to the, the spiritual side of the soul, which I think going back to the beginning of the conversation, people tend to intuitively understand that spirituality and the soul go hand in hand. What I think is less obvious, though, when we think about the soul being the integration center is the fact that there's a lot of non-spiritual aspects about us that also are affected by the soul or integrated by the soul. So I think of mm. the body or the mind or our feelings. All of these things are also brought into the integration center to be sorted out and become the truest part of us that they can be. And so to illustrate this, since you, you did an illustration earlier, I know a uh, pastor who was going through just a horrific rough spot that ultimately resulted in this pastor exiting the church that they were at. And it was kind of a soul-searching time and a very confusing time and a frustrating time. And a wise friend of this pastor said, are you exercising? And I mean, I talk about the most basic, simple advice that one can give. You know, I think spiritually we expect, how are you praying? Are you praying about this? Are you, are you reading God's word? Are you spending time with God? Right? But this person was wise enough to know that we're not just spiritual beings. We are also physical beings. 
that need to be taking care of ourselves in all aspects. So are you exercising? Are you getting out and taking a walk? And this pastor reported to me, gosh, just getting out every day for an hour and walking, which ultimately led to some really good prayer time as well, uh, was so healing and so restorative for them. We can't forget Mm. that we're also embodied creatures. Absolutely. And I would imagine most of us, speaking of two other aspects that you referred to, most of us tend to either live in our heads and forget about our hearts Hmm. or live in our hearts and tend to forget about our heads. And there is something powerful about remembering that soul has to do with both of them, that (laughs) we can have a, a significant impact on our souls through our purely intellectual examination of the Word of God. And it doesn't have to be mystical or experiential at all. And yeah. on the rever- in the reverse, you can have a purely meditative heart encounter with God that isn't on any particular level cerebral, and it also has an impact on our soul. And it may be that we need to somehow lean in to whatever comes naturally for us on that spectrum while also seeking to benefit from the opposite end of the spectrum, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think we encounter this a lot, not necessarily in our friendship, but I think our friendship illustrates this in a way because I come from a very Baptist-like tradition or just straight up Baptist tradition in various Baptist forms. And you are currently serving and you have served for the last 18 years as an Assemblies of God pastor. And so if ever there was a divide in Christendom, over head versus heart. It's mm-hmm. Baptists versus the Pentecostals, right? And mm-hmm. uh, Baptists love to fling invectives about Pentecostals and how they're all head and no heart. I have a family member who referred to a very ultra-charismatic church that they went to. This person referred to the people in that church as renewal flakes, because uh, that's just <laughs> all they wanted to do every week was be renewed. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, Pentecostals want to fling at Baptists. Now, you guys are just all head and Bible knowledge, and you've forgotten to actually know the God behind the Bible. So mm-hmm. I think each of our camps, if you will, represents the opposite, opposite ends of that. And when we can learn to integrate those, boy, there's some really, really good things that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And And to give, I think— grace when people are in a different place on that spectrum than we are. I guess I think part of integrating heart and mind in my own experience is to acknowledge that for me personally, I'm probably in the 70% mind, 30% heart kind of space. Mm. And recently, for example, we have been, my wife and I have been in the middle of looking at a 
really significant purchase for us. And it felt, it's funny that I would say it that way, but it felt like a bad Christian question to ask my wife, how do you feel about this purchase? Hmm. Because shouldn't we be making those kinds of purchases rationally and logically and intelligently and all of those kinds of things? (sighs) And yet it was interesting because my wife's natural inclination towards heart and intuition, she had some exceptional wisdom to offer in our discussion on this that if I had asked her to reason out her thinking on it, I would have gotten an answer. My wife is incredibly intelligent, but I got a deeper answer, I think, asking for heart and intuition responses that were profoundly consistent with what I think Jesus is all about. Yes. I I guess my, my point is, Integrating the two doesn't mean I get to be good. I, I get good at both of them. I integrate the two by recognizing myself to be in a community in which different balances are expressed in different individuals, and the integration is a community integration, not an individual integration. Mm. That is a really good corrective because I think a lot of our soul work or spiritual practices tend to be individualized. Mm. Silence, solitude, individual prayer, these types of things, these are all me and God. And there is a place for that. There's that, There's no question. But it sounds like what you're saying is there's also a place for corporate soul formation and corporate balances to a a group's soul and a group's ability to be well-rounded. Absolutely. Though I wouldn't say I meant to say that, but now that you're telling me that I said that, I'm going to agree with myself wholeheartedly. (laughs) Um, But in that vein, using silence as a classic example of a discipline that is used to emphasize soul, I remember many years ago, deciding I was going to do a Bible study on the idea of silence in Scripture. And what I found fascinating was that the biblical discipline of silence was far more often a corporate discipline than a private discipline. The discipline of silence the Bible talks about is don't respond to a fool according to his folly. The fool who keeps his mouth shut seems quite wise. Those kinds of things. We so seldom talk about that, but I think that that hints towards this idea that you just raised of corporate soul work. Yes. And goes back to what you said earlier about part of soul formation is denying certain parts of ourselves or saying no to ourselves. And sometimes we want to answer a fool quite loudly, but Mm -hmm. saying no is itself a spiritual practice. Man, well, you clearly agree with you on some things. 
I would like to. <laughs> As I often do. <laughs> uh, same here. So what I want to do, uh, we have talked a, a little bit about the soul here today, and there's probably so much more to uncover. And so I want to turn it out to the audience and say, we want to hear from you. Take these thoughts about the soul being an integration center and having various aspects of the self being brought into wholeness within the soul and its relative invisibility, and comment on it. Bring to the community more of your own thoughts or your own heart, as the case may be. And we want to make this a community effort. So follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We post regularly about our episodes and about other thoughts and about different events in our lives. So we will put a post out there specific to this episode, and it will be inviting your thoughts. So we look forward to hearing from you. Come join the conversation. Yeah. I mean, like we just said, soul development is a corporate thing. And mm-hmm. so we're super interested to hear what you have to say about what the soul is and how you develop yours. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, I actually want to open it back up to you, Josh from Missouri, and I want to hear what else you've been thinking about this week. Oh, man. So I just read a book that I absolutely loved. One of my favorite genres of books are a type of book that is called a leadership fable. It is any book that tries to teach leadership principles by telling a story. Andy Stanley has a couple of these. Patrick Lencioni has a bunch of these. The one that I read this week was by Marilee Adams. It's called Change Your Questions, Change Your Life. And it was exceptional. Hmm. It hinges around this picture that she focuses on in all of the things that she does, Marilee Adams does, uh, that basically says that in any given moment, there are two pathways that you can travel in reaction to the present moment. So there's a person on a journey, and the upper pathway is called the learner mindset, and the lower pathway is the judger mindset. And the judger mindset leads along this road to what the picture calls the judger pit. And the learner mindset leads along this wonderful, happy, sunny road uh, (laughs) to success. Um, And the suggestion she makes is that we are constantly, every moment of every day, driven by the questions that we ask. And those questions drive us along one of these two paths. So the judger mindset asks questions like, whose fault is this? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? Why am I such a failure? Why should I bother? It's questions that are reactive, that focus on blame, that focus on there being a win-lose outcome. The learner mindset asks questions like, what just happened? 
Mm. What assumptions am I making? Am I taking responsibility? What is possible right now? What choices do I have? What can I learn here? Yeah. And what Adam suggests is that all of us have moments when we are in judger and moments when we are in learner, but that we are propelled to both emotional and external well-being when we choose learner over judger. Even mm. to the degree that when we see judger questions, judger mindset coming up in ourselves, we choose to adopt the learner mindset about our own judger. So we don't mm. go judger on our judger. Yes. But I am absolutely all in on the fact that we are always asking questions. I think these two pathways offer a very valuable way of splitting up the questions we ask ourselves based on where those questions are going to get us. And I just find this to be a powerful tool. Which road do I want to be on? The judger or the learner pathway? It really makes me think of Dan Siegel's comments on mindfulness and this idea of being curious, being curious mm. about yourself, being curious about the way you showed up or whatever. And he has a lot of adjectives that go into curious that I'm not going to think of in the moment, but you know, things like being compassionately curious or open, non-judgmental, all of these things where you're really just saying, huh, I wonder why I did that or why it happened that way. I wonder what I can learn here. That is such a great and useful mindset to take into any encounter. Absolutely. And to know that in the middle of this map, there is this little lane that's called the switching lane. And the idea is the right question can get me out of judger and into learner at any time. I am not stuck on one road or the other. Mm. And I love that. I don't have to be stuck in judger because I live in judger a lot. <laughs> and at no point that I'm aware of has having a conversation, for example, with my wife from the judger path ever helped me. <laughs> oh, man, you either? No, never. Not one time. <laughs> but, but paying attention to the fact that I, speaking of soul here, I think myself tends to go on the judger path, but my soul, having been informed that the learner path is an option, is drawn to the potential and possibility and creativity of the learner path. Mm. But that's enough about that. What about you? What have you been thinking about? Yeah, my thought comes from church this last weekend, which was just good. There are times where church just is extra. And this week was extra, and I just really I think what you mean it. as a good Christian is that church is always amazing, and you just happen to have caught it this time. 
Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I do generally like church, but there are times where I like, oh man, I really like church. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. There are times, there are times it's better. Yeah, whether it's because of how the leaders did or because of the heart that I brought into it. But at any rate, we were taking communion, and our church's practice with taking communion is to do it every week. And pre-COVID, we would walk to various tables that were placed around the sanctuary, and we would grab the elements, a small cup of grape juice and some torn bread, and we would go back to our seats, and then we would, you know, as a congregation, be led in the taking of the elements. That is the pre-COVID habit. The COVID habit was to get those little awful containers with the lids that you can't really open. And then mm -hmm. this last week, we were walking again. So we went up to the tables. And what greeted us at the tables? It was like the the stepbrother to the other package. This is like the hour, hourglass-shaped package. I don't know if you've seen oh, these. Oh, yep, yep. So juice on one side. They are the slightly side. higher quality version of the other thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So juice on one side, a little cracker on the other, and they have individual, like, pull tabs to open it up. So it's a little easier to manipulate. Yeah. And so I get it, right? We're still in COVID times. I understand. But I couldn't help but think as I was taking the communion, looking back at the first century church who referred to communion as the love feast. And they enjoyed so much food and wine together at these love feast, that at least in Corinth, Paul had to tell him, stop getting drunk at communion. So this was a huge problem. If, if you're hungry, eat at home. You don't need to be like gorging yourself at this feast and getting drunk at this feast and leaving nothing for the poorer people. So we went from the love feast that people enjoyed together as a community, and now we're reduced to this tiny little hourglass shape thing that we have to do because of COVID. And it just felt like we had reduced communion to almost unrecognizable. And sometimes I think our gospel is the same way. Have we taken this magnificent, unimaginable, intoxicating reality that is the gospel and reduced it to the Roman road. Mm. Nothing about taking communion the way we did on Sunday was wrong. Nothing about the Roman road is wrong. What I'm trying to illustrate is its ultimate insufficiency in covering exactly what it is we mean by salvation, or in, what, in the other case, communion. So I actually, you know, one of these days, I would really love to have a much longer conversation about the gospel. What really is the gospel? I would love to flesh that out more deeply. That would be a wonderful conversation and something that, at least for me, comes up regularly as I help people parse out what I would call the essentials of our faith. 
I think this is a fascinating question. Yeah. So one more fascinating question, and that is the Witch Josh question. Oh, yes. So on social media, we posted, which Josh is older than the other? And the answer is Josh from Missouri. Me. Yes. Even though I did have to, after we posted that, I did have to check with you to find out if I was in fact older because I couldn't remember. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. You are older. You actually graduated a year ahead of me as well in college. It was nice of you to stick around in town for an extra year before moving back to the East Coast because we got an extra year to hang out while I finished my degree. So that was that was very kind of you. You're welcome. I'm <laughs> happy to have made your final year in small town Missouri more manageable. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. All right. This has been awesome. I've really enjoyed it, and yes. I am looking forward to next week. Yeah, I can't wait. Really excited, actually, about getting to look into the world of the soul as it is impacted by working at 911. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that conversation as well. All right, well, I'll talk to you then. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.